Choice is brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating 70 years of getting more books to more people. Welcome to Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books. I'm your host, Paige Nick. It's election day, so I hope you're out there making your mark. Hey, if there are any politicians listening, how about we take VAT off the sale of all books? They are an important staple, after all. We have a special tribute show this month, not just a tribute to books, which is pretty much what we do every month anyway, but this month we're paying tribute to a very special book about a very special man who made some very fine music that has really changed this country. October saw the launch of Scattling of Africa, the new memoir by Johnny Clegg, published by Pan Macmillan. So stay tuned. We have a review of this book at the end of the show, and all the music in this month's show are great Johnny Clegg tracks. But before we get to the music and the icon, a starter to whet your appetite for books and for lunch. Philippa Sheffitz, what did you think of A Sprig of Rosemary by Rosemary Saunders? I see the cover blurb calls it a journey of culinary memories and recipes. A Sprig of Rosemary by Rosemary Saunders, published by Prime Matches Heritage. Only travel could match Rosemary's passion for food. On her way to Australia, she stopped in Cape Town and stayed. Here she started a family, a catering business and a cooking school, Cuisine Mari Rose. She grew up in the 50s in the English countryside. Rosemary came from a family of restaurateurs, so chose to study at hotel and catering school in Birmingham, where she completed a course with distinctions then a teaching course in London. She dedicates the book, subtitled A Journey of Culinary Memoirs and Recipes, to a supportive family, loyal friends, challenging, appreciative clients, and Nick. There are the family favorites, homemade pasta and Rosemary's Easy Tomato Sauce, prawn risotto, pear and almond tart first mastered at hotel school, there are the classics, Cacavan with heavenly potatoes, creme brulee and creme caramel, and the ones that starred at Cape Town celebrations, salmon towers, twice-baked cheese souffle with tomato coulis, lamb tapenade, nougat ice cream with caramel sauce, chocolate meringue galette. Rosemary's talent for catering was more than a culinary skills. She was intuitively astute at sorting out crises that neither hosts or guests could ever have guessed. She showed the same resolute when a devastating fire destroyed her business premises. Without a hitch, she catered for all 46 functions booked that month, including one the very next night on a wine farm for a client flying in from Hong Kong with 40 friends. She loved France a week-long course at the Ritz Cookery School in Paris. Later, she lived in France and worked, developing food and wine tours for the Provencal kitchen. The week-long tours took in the countryside, wine tasting and lunching at terraced restaurants in the vineyards, plus cookery demonstrations by acclaimed chefs. With friends or family, leisurely Provencal luncheon parties were enjoyed on the terrace of her home in Kuchenyak, onion tart with chevre, real salad niçoise, 
chicken quenelle with champagne sauce and tagliatelle, apple tartatan, warm chocolate tart, chocolate sienna tort. She unashamedly boasts that her carrot and pineapple cake was renowned at bridge parties in Monaco. Rosemary lived there for almost 10 years. The fresh fish was amazing. And rather than the more labor-intensive Marseille Boerbes, she developed a recipe, fish soup Marie Rose, served with a rich and spicy red pepper and garlic gruyere. There are Greek recipes from a Greek friend, a great cook, Greek lamb casserole with almonds and feta, and baklava served with fresh mint tea brewed with a cinnamon stick. Thai recipes from a cookery course at the Oriental Hotel in Bangkok, Thai chicken salad and red Thai chicken curry. COVID-19 cancelled out a birthday celebration planned for Italy, allowed no socialising in Cape Town. So Rosemary delivered an Italian dinner of Osso risotto and tiramisu to all her Cape Town families, then enjoyed a festive virtual birthday dinner party. Styling and Photography by Rosemary, publishes Prime Matters Heritage. Us book lovers love a good deal, which is exactly what we're about to get, as Beryl Eichenberger gives us three reviews for the price of one. Heading for the holidays, here are three novels that, while eclectic in their range, are all equally absorbing. Literary magician Elif Shafak's latest offering, The Island of Missing Trees, takes us to Cyprus, London, and the world of trees. A fig tree is the narrator, metaphorically reminding us of the spread of our own roots and branches, that growing is living. Champion of the displaced, the disenfranchised, the unloved, and the environment, Shafak is a compassionate writer who moves and informs. Cyprus, 1974, a divided island, war, and the forbidden love of two teenagers. For Greek Christian Costas and Turkish Muslim Daphne, meeting in the local tavern, the Happy Fig, offers privacy and protection under a soaring fig tree, the witness to the affair, to loss, death, destruction, and displacement. Tree language tells us that it is the fig tree that one must come to if it's love you are after or love you have lost. London, 2010. Costas is a botanist and scientist. His wife has died and his 16-year-old daughter Ada is lost, stranded on that island between child and adult. She knows little of her parents' history or birthplace or the significance of the fig tree in their London garden about to be prepared for the cold winter ahead. When Aunt Miriam, whom Ada has never met, arrives from Cyprus, memories surface as longing, grief and loss are faced. Shafak's enchanting style is a mirror to so many issues we face. Further back in time, we go to 1940s Britain, World War II and the Bletchley Park Codebreakers. Kate Quinn gives voice to the enormous role women played in uncovering the secrets that led to the end of the war. The Rose Code is a well-researched historical novel that brings the real and the fictional together in a compulsive read. When people from all classes were thrown together in a calculated plan that brought intelligence, out-of-the-box thinkers and brilliant minds into play. An environment that not only cracked codes, but also people. Three young women are assigned to BP. Mab, the girl from Shoreditch, determined to move up in life. Osla, the dizzy debutante with linguistic talents and a prince for a boyfriend. Beth has been misused and maligned, but has an unusual aptitude for solving riddles. 
1947, a tragedy has torn the three girls apart. But when a mysterious coded message arrives for both Osla and Mab, they're forced to communicate, to find Beth, and crack a final code before it is too late. Quinn brings tension, patriotism, and passion to this page-turner about a fascinating piece of World War II history. The Night She Disappeared by Lisa Jewell is a cleverly plotted thriller set in a small, picturesque English village. A teenage couple, Tallulah and Zach, disappear in June 2017 after an innocent date night. As parents of baby Noah, perhaps it was all too much. But Kim, Tallulah's mother, knows better, as Lula was a devoted mother. Led to the wealthy Jacques family in the massive house, Dark Place, where apparently the couple had last been seen, she's fobbed off by Scarlett, the rebellious and manipulative daughter. And Kim learns that her own quiet daughter also has secrets. Within months, Dark Place has been abandoned, and 14 months later, there are no new leads. A young couple arrive in the village, crime writer Sophie and her partner, Sean. He has been recently appointed head teacher at Maypole House, the private boarding school for teenagers who flunked major exams. When Sophie is walking in the woods behind the boarding school, she sees a poster on a gate reading, Big Here, which of course she does. She discovers a ring. Who does it belong to? It is Kim who knows, and they join forces to find answers. With a plot as twisted as the main perpetrators, Jewel has you in her grip from first to last page. The Island of Missing Trees by Elif Shafak is published by Penguin. The Rose Code by Kate Quinn, published by HarperCollins. And The Night She Disappeared by Lisa Jewell, published by Century. Here's Johnny Clegg's Great Heart from the soundtrack to the film Jock of the Bushveld.
Speaking of a great heart, John Hanks read The Living Deserts of Southern Africa by Barry Lovegrove. Barry Lovegrove has produced an incredibly attractive and informative book on the living deserts of Southern Africa, describing with passion and enthusiasm and with some superb photographs the extraordinary diversity of plants and animals which have adapted to cope with the rigours of desert life. Far from being desolate places characterised by very little rainfall and temperature fluctuations from extremes of heat and cold, some of these deserts are teeming with an amazing range of species that have adapted to thriving in this harsh environment. Not surprisingly, water is the currency of life, and this is the title of Chapter 2, full of excellent accounts of desert survival and structural adaptations in both plants and animals to manage this key currency, from the fascinating leaf structure of the Velvicia, a plant whose leaf never wilts, to the behaviour of the Namaqua sandgrouse, wetting its unique belly feathers to transport water to its chicks. The feathers can retain more water than a typical kitchen sponge, and the chicks take these feathers in their beaks and strip the absorbed water from them. Keeping cool in the many very hot days requires structural and behavioural adaptations, and one of the examples in the book is that of ground squirrels foraging in the heat of the day using their large, fluffed-out tails as parasols to shade their bodies when they feed. Survival also depends on developing an armory to avoid being eaten by others, such as the scales of the pangolin and the spines of the hedgehog and porcupine, but also the use of an amazing array of toxins produced by plants and insects, which are undoubtedly excellent deterrents. Some of you will have heard of the mysterious evenly spaced circles in the desert, each one up to 30 metres in diameter, and their origins have generated much interest and speculation, including UFO landing sites and fairy rings where the fairies sing and dance. Barry Lovegrove has done a great job in coming up with more realistic explanations, and you must read the book to find out what these are. I need no encouragement to go back to two of my favourite destinations, the Ice Richtersfeld Transfrontier Park and the Kalahari Transfrontier Park. But for those listening to this programme who have never been to any of the deserts of southern Africa, I have no doubt that once you start reading the wealth of fascinating and well-researched accounts of why these areas have intrigued travellers and scientists alike for so many years, a trip to one or more of the four desert biomes in this part of Africa will be a priority for the new year. The title again, The Living Deserts of Southern Africa, it's written by Barry Lovegrove and it's published by Straight Nature in Cape Town and you can buy a copy for 450 rand. Johnny Clegg isn't the only South African icon we've got for you today. A new Zakes and Dar novel is always something to celebrate. Beverly Roosmuller interviewed Zakes about his latest novel, Wayfarer's Hymns. Distinguished South African author Zakes and Dar is the author of many books, including Ways of Dying and one of my favourites, the locally-based The Whale Caller. He is also an artist in the widest sense of the word, not only teaching creative writing at Ohio University, but he also paints, writes poetry, and composes music. And the importance of music in his life, for he is an accomplished flautist and played in a chamber orchestra, is central to his latest book with its musical title, Wayfarer's Hymn, a tale set to Lesotho's music, in a way, both a book and a song. Welcome to Fine Music Radio, Zex. 
Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be talking to you again and for you being briefly back in South Africa to promote this remarkable new book of yours. Can you tell us about this latest book set in what is perhaps your most traditional Southern African setting yet? Well, it is set in Lesotho indeed amongst the musicians who play a, a genre of music known as famu which uses accordion or the concertina and is a very popular genre in Lesotho but also in South Africa as well so that's my setting and that's where my conflicts lie you know gang warfare amongst the musicians and their followers but then the action spills into South Africa into you know the mines in Sapiwas as you might know many basutu men work in the mines of south africa in welcome in johannesburg in the the platinum mines of the northwest province so in all those areas then you know the the story travels you know from the sotu to the mines in those places and also you know it shows how these gangs that are led by musicians are also involved in illegal mining in South Africa so called zamazama mining or artisan mining that happens in the abandoned mines you say in your book that today you cannot be a gang leader unless you are a musician can you unpack that a bit well of course these gangs you know started innocently as musicians themselves and their followers and then they would have battles amongst themselves like tough wars just as you used to have in the united states those rap hip hop wars the west coast versus the east coast so it was something of that nature and of course the musicians spread their influence and their followers and then of course they would have their colors or their blankets you know those special colors and when you see those colors you know to which gang this person belongs and of course in lesotho the real life of lesotho now especially in the mafiteng district there are killings every week there are funerals of followers of these musicians so that's how it all started but then since a lot of these people are or were miners as well you know in the formal mining sector when some of these mines closed down then they took over these mines and of course since the musicians already had all that influence amongst their followers they continued to be gang leaders not only in that sector of music but in illegal mining as well the main character in the book is in fact a musician and you have another character called Toloki who is a professional mourner something unknown to the cities i wanted to ask you this question he and some of the other characters reminded me of the wandering troubadours of the middle ages which was also of course a time of danger and warring factions is that a fair analogy yes indeed i would say so as for toloki that's a character who comes from my two previous novels ways of dying and a scion which is set in america in fact this story comes between ways of dying and scion 
making it, you know, the Tologi trilogy. I was quite fascinated by the gangs, the, the cult of the train and the cult of the Aramili and the complexity of it. Uh, you know, just to finish off, Zex, what, what would you like people to take away from this book? Well, I never know what, what people will, will take away from any of my books. And I, I'm, I'm never able to determine that in any case. I am a storyteller. I tell the story. The reader gets what she or he wants to get. I often hear a reader say, oh, you know, that book changed my life. But I never intended to change anyone's life. I tell the story, a reader will get whatever that reader gets, and another reader will get something different. Well, I certainly found it a book that took me into a world that I had no imagining of at all. And I thank you for that. I wish we could talk longer about it, but um, I'm going to have to say thank you very much for giving us your time today. Thank and you. it's lovely to be able to talk to you again. Wayfarer's Hymns by the acclaimed writer Zeg Sundar has just been published by Umuzi. I've just finished Wayfarer's Hymns and it's so poetic as to almost be music itself. An earlier Zeg Sundar novel I enjoyed was Rachel's Blue, which reminds me of our next track by Johnny Clegg, African Sky Blue. All the Johnny Clegg music in today's show was selected by Dave Wood. Take it away, Dave. Will you bless my life? 
Our next interview comes at a rather ironic time with today being election day. So while you're out there today, hopefully fighting crime in your own way by making your mark on a ballot, Philip Todros talks to Angelo Agrizzi about surviving the beast, the ugly truths about state capture, and why they wanted to kill him. This is the sequel to Agrizzi's bestseller, Inside the Belly of the Beast. Surviving the Beast. Uncensored, uncut, the ugly truths about state capture and why they tried to kill me by Angela Agrizzi and it's published by Truth Be Told Publishing and it's really about publishing the truth I think you would agree with me wouldn't you Angela? Most definitely that's what it's about but it's also a very problematical way of telling a story that you're so intimately involved with and of course it's it's kind of almost awkward because surviving the beast and yet you were one of the people involved in creating the beast that's so true, isn't it? I was involved, but I was not complicitly involved in paying out the bribes or, or bribing people, but I thought it was important, um, if you've read my first book, Inside the Belly of the Beast, to explain why surviving the beast is so importantly and, and why I wrote it. No, it was an excellent way of telling what was actually happening. And then, as you say, and I think very importantly, that had you known, for one, as a whistleblower, and I quote you, we definitely should have been more selective with whom we trusted when we indulged highly inflammable information. There were many snakes and cowards. So let's talk about what you actually did survive. I mean, it was a horrendous experience, and I think we just need to touch on those things before we ask you some more, more questions. Sure. So you'd like to know what I actually survived. Well, I survived literally being poisoned and um, being put into ICU, being kept uh, in isolation for 10 days where nobody could get close to me and uh, then ending up in, in, thank God, a private hospital where I was treated and then, you know, the chief brought back from the dead. So that's what I actually survived, yes. And as a whistleblower, you weren't getting any protection? No, most definitely not. Most definitely not. I mean, if you look at the book and you can scan in the various QR codes, you'll actually hear some of the threats that were made um, to me by some of the ex-directors of, of the company and by, um, by the chairman, Jonas Kumedi himself. He actually says, quite simply, listen, we're going to open up doors and we'll get people to kill him and then come back and we'll close doors and nobody will know what's happened to him. It's a scary story. and You mentioned... Um your resources, you know, going to your sources, and I find the Hulk idea of the QR codes impeccable. It makes much better than footnotes at the end of a page. You actually yeah. have the content given to you, and it's a very vivid way of finding out that what you're saying is true. That's right, and I think what's important is that your listeners can then actually access those QR codes and, and scan them in, and you can watch videos, hear proven and audited, um, uh, see the messages at least and the WhatsApps, and also get to hear the actual directors speaking to other people threatening with what they're going to do to me. And, you know, all that information was actually also given to the Hawks and to the investigators, and to date nothing has happened with it. What are your hopes that something will happen? I mean, first of all, we have all these very, very unfortunate uh, happenings with whistleblowers who actually have indeed lost their lives. What is actually happening on those fronts? Is anything positive being done that you are aware of? I've just come off the line with a meeting with several other whistleblowers. I'm not going to mention, mention their names, but they're well known um, from various governmental organizations as well. 
And we all sing the same tune. Absolutely nothing's been done. And the question is, why is government silent on this? Why is government not doing anything about it? Why is it that they're trying to keep us quiet and, and uh, you know, actually making it even more difficult for us to try and live our lives after we've, we've given all the evidence and uncovered all the corruption that's out there? The question is, why would they continue to do this? And why would they continue to do some of these investigations in secret, as you mentioned about the one investigation, which you can't really yes. comment on, which makes yes. it even more intriguing and more frustrating? Well, let's just take a simple example, which is the, the incident which Gavin Watson was killed. Let's say he was killed, okay, or he was murdered, or he had an accident or whatever. Let's take that one incident. We had Fakil and Balula turn around on the 1st of September 2019, make a statement to say that they are doing absolutely everything as, as government now to investigate this matter. What has happened two years since? Absolutely nothing. Surely that is a, there's an area of concern. Surely now going into the next elections, we should be asking the questions, but what has government actually done to keep to their promises? Well, this is the problems that we are facing in this country, and in a way it's, it's not comfortable reading, but it does show us what is or is not happening, and all strength to you for having the courage to keep on on this track that you are doing and trying to inform us and keep us informed and showing the other side of the picture, even though, as I said, it, it came to me from with some misgivings. But congratulations to you. I must tell you it's a Thank book you. that you cannot put down. It's Surviving the Beast. The Ugly Truths About State Capture and Why They Try to Kill Me by Angela Grizzi. And it's certainly a book that you won't put down or forget very easily. The integration of QR codes in this book creates a unique interactive experience, bringing to life key video evidence, articles, interviews, testimonials and documents from the Zondo State Capture Commission of Inquiry. Anthony Frijon joins us in the studio to discuss Hitler's Spies by Professor Evert Kleinhans. And this is published by Jonathan Ball. Hitler's Spies is far removed from James Bond. Amazing technology, fast cars and frequently fast dames. The reality, going back 80 plus years, is more prosaic. Primitive technology by today's standards, fast cars were bicycles then, not much in the way of fast dames either. South Africa was a divided country in 1939. Schism between English and Afrikaans speakers going back to the Second Anglo-Boer War, if not further. The Union of South Africa declaring war on Germany in 1914, invading German Southwest Africa, declaring war on Nazi Germany in 1939, exacerbated the situation. All these events planted the seeds for what was to transpire superbly researched and written about by Dr. Evert Kleinhans, senior lecturer in the Department of Military History at the Faculty of Military Science of Stellenbosch University in his book Hitler's Spies. The author spent years searching through archives, uncovering a vast amount of unpublished material, much of it hidden from public sight by the nationalist government that came to power in 1948 unveiling in great detail the German intelligence networks operating in South Africa during the Second World War. The German consul in Lorenzo Marx, now Maputo, played an important role. 
only a bicycle pedal to the border with the Union. A fascinating, highly informative book, this is a dense, serious study, not light reading. In the author's own words, the book aims to offer a fresh perspective on a largely forgotten episode of South African history. In this, he has succeeded admirably. Many names are brought to the fore, people who were actively involved in providing information, for example, on shipping around the vital sea route around the Cape, destabilizing the Smuts government by creating dissent between English and Afrikaans South Africans. It should be noted that the all-volunteer Union Defence Force was made up of predominantly Afrikaans speakers. There are two names that might be remembered, one being Roby Lebrunt, who made little impact in the spying game, best remembered perhaps from the excellent 1990 TV series The Fourth Reich. He didn't play a decisive role in the intelligence war. However, he did briefly cause some concern for the authorities. Lebrunt was a boxer who represented South Africa at the 1936 Berlin Olympics. He became an ardent Nazi, staying in Germany after the Olympics, going so far as joining the Wehrmacht, the German army. Lebrandt was sent to South Africa by submarine, landing off the Namakuland coast north of Cape Town with the aim of stirring up enough trouble in the country, leading to the defeat of the Smuts government and a government sympathetic to the German cause coming to power. He met with Dr. Hans von Rendsburg, the other name that some might recall, an ardent admirer of National Socialism, leader of the Ossevar Brandwach, an organization opposed to South Africa's participation in the war. At their meeting, Lebrandt announced that he was going to take over the leadership of the Ossevar Brandwach. Interesting to note, a senior member of the Ossovar Brandwach informed the Minister of Justice, Harry Lawrence, that Lebrandt had arrived in the Union. A manhunt was launched, and not long after, he was captured at a roadblock on his way from Johannesburg to Pretoria. Ultimately, the German networks operating in South Africa had no strategic impact on the eventual outcome of the war. Hitler's spies, secret agents and the intelligence war in South Africa 1939 to 1945, written by Dr. Irvid Kleinhans, published by Jonathan Ball. Highly recommended if history is your thing. The light of day. Oh. 
smiles Cause no one can put him down Inside him a boy looks up to his father For a sign or an approving eye Oh, it's funny how those ones so close are now gone Still so affect our lives Oh, see, yes, I'm coming Oh, see, yes, I'm coming So big, I wear my mind on my You know the time is coming Oh, yes, I'm coming Oh, see, yes, I'm coming Continuing our tribute to Johnny Clegg, that was The Crossing. You're tuned into Fine Music Radio on this fine Monday, and this is Book Choice, sponsored by Exclusive Books. And not that we ever needed it, but next up, empirical proof that teens read. Fine Music Radio's Vanessa Levenstein recorded our second Book Choice teen podcast with learners from Hertzlia and Gardens Commercial High Schools. Here's an excerpt. Visit fmr.co.za to listen to the whole podcast. Welcome to Fine Music Radio's second podcast of Book Choice Teen. The text is Diamond Boy by Michael Williams. Our Book Choice Teens are grade 8 and 9 learners from Gardens Commercial and Hertzlia in Cape Town. Michael Williams will be contributing to this discussion remotely from London. A big thank you to Oxford University Press for sponsoring the books. To start with, Here's what Hertzlia headmaster Mark Faulkner had to say about the power of books. The reason that we are having these teen podcasts is because reading is something at schools and more generally we are very passionate about. Um, It's actually our secret weapon. We know that reading improves cognitive functioning. It allows us to be more empathetic, more understanding. It allows us to make sense of the world, to understand identity, to be able to listen to share. And that's something that Diamond Boy certainly allows us to engage with, the story of someone who had a very different life from the life that we in South Africa have had, certainly at this school, but probably more generally. And so reading allows us to participate in a way that others would not necessarily be able to do so. We asked the learners to introduce themselves and to share their favorite quotes from the book. Hi, I'm Benjamin Lazarus, and I'm a grade 8 learner from Hertzley High. Hi, my name is Nira Gibson, and I go to Hertzley High School. Hi, this is Taylor Payne from Gardens Commercial. Hi, I'm Cassidy from Gardens Commercial in grade 9. Hi, I'm Wangisani Putalinga in grade 9 at Gardens Commercial. Hi, I'm Shaki Ramad, a ninth grader attending Gardens Commercial High. Hi, I'm Leo Rodenaka from Hertzley High School. My favorite quote from the book was, Telling a secret to an unworthy person is like carrying a grain in a bag with a hole. I personally liked the quote because it came from experience, and I feel like experience is the best way to learn. I was going to do this quote, but you did it, so I have to find a new one. (laughs) I also have to admit that I claim no ownership of that because it's actually a Shona proverb. Well spotted there. Uh, Shakira, good job. You said the quote is, he taught me what it means to be a man. Do you resonate anything to do with that? Right. He taught me what it means to be a man. No diamond is a true diamond until it's been cut and polished. Yeah, I think my father, 
My father's still alive. He's 84 years old. Uh, and I owe my, my life to, to his influence and my worldview to his influence. And um, I think Bobakar becomes a surrogate father to Patson in the end. And I think fathers and mothers are really important to, to young people. You know, I think they, are, they play a critical role in forming us. So that does resonate with me, Cassidy. Taylor? So my quote, one of my favorite quotes from the book is exactly if after only happens in storybooks, the real life is depicted. Mm. How do you feel about that? I mean, yeah, come on, I'm going to ask you a question there, Taylor. Do you think that's true? Yes, because the only reason why I read is because the world in the books is way different from real, real life. So. That's really funny because the book did have a happily ever after. <laughs> that's true, yes. Um, my favorite quote was, my father always said that a journey should change your life in some way. Well, I suppose that when you have nothing, a journey promises everything. And yeah, I yeah. resonate with this because yeah. we are all on a journey yeah. in life. We all have nothing. So once we feel content with ourselves and we have reached the point where this is my journey, this is where it ends, we will realize that we have gained something from that journey that we've been on. Oh, that's beautiful, Wanganasi. That's wonderful. I, I completely agree with you. Well done. That is so good. You should become a writer, young, young woman. You'll be great. <laughs> You can articulate. Well done. Come on. So my quote was, I know you are going to make it. Even though it looks bad now, you're going to feel right. So that quote really resonates with me because sometimes when you're in a situation where you really think it can't get worse, there's, there's always a way out. Um, whether it's just through sheer willpower or perseverance, you can usually get out of it. Wow, that's really good. And something my father said to me, which I, I, I'll always remember, he said to me, son, this too will pass. Good quote there. Well done. My quote is, in that very same instant, I hated them and prized them. I wanted nothing to do with them, but I wanted everything they could do for me. I feel like this sums up most of like humanity in general. Humanity interacting with some with like dangerous things because there's so much to gain, but this but like it's especially with Patton here, there's trauma as well. Like there's so much trauma in that statement, but he still recognizes the possibilities that they can give him and the, the stuff that they could do for him and Bruce. Wow, Mira, that's very profound. Thanks. <laughs> that's really profound but that is profound I, I i hadn't thought about that in that way and um yeah that's wow that's quite an insight which i hadn't really really twigged so thank you for that thank you the enormous flat topped mountain looms over the city a huge cloud rides the faraway cliffs racing down the gray rock face as if driven by an invisible force if you know cape town and table mountain I think it's a really amazing way to start the book because <laughs> I knew it was a book about these diamond mines in Zimbabwe and to, to hear that he wakes up in South Africa and Cape Town in an environment that I knew was really encouraging almost and it's a really pretty quote. <laughs> uh, thank you, Leah. Yeah, I think... I think we sometimes take for granted our beautiful Table Mountain, and uh, it's kind of nice 
to see it from the view of of somebody who is not used to it. So I kind of try to imagine seeing Table Mountain for the first time. And um, that was the description I came up with. So thank you for, for picking that up, Leah. And, th and thank you to all of you for your time and for your interest and, and for all the work that you've done uh, in preparing for this. I, it's really lovely to hear your thoughts. And it's something that I've really been wanting for this book to land in South Africa, because I think as South Africans, we also need to be aware of what's happening on our borders, you know, beyond just our own country. Well done to our learners. You shone like ethically sourced diamonds. To listen to this podcast, go to fmr.coza, click podcasts, book choice, and then book choice teen, episode two. We'd like to thank everyone involved for partnering us in such an important reading project. And of course, to Vanessa Levenstein for driving it. Johnny Clegg's Impy, the Springbok's unofficial anthem to introduce Melvin Minard's review of Scattling of Africa by Johnny Clegg. As Clegg's brave family, Jenny, Jesse, and Yaron Clegg, have said, in writing this book, Johnny had the opportunity to revisit his most transformative memories. Scattling of Africa is a testament to hope, courage, and human connection against all odds.
One day in the late 60s, over a weekend, the police stopped in front of the house in Pesadnot Street of Johannesburg's Bellevue suburb and presented the 15-year-old Johnny Clegg to his mother and daringly asked, Do you know where we found him? Muriel Pinar's reply was short and cool. In one of the hostels, I suppose. He's learning how to dance. A rare bird, Mrs. Pinar was sensitive to a boy's different ways. The dance the youngster was learning was that of the Zulu warriors. The place where he was taking lessons, the white boy amongst the black inner-city migrant workers, was the infamous Vemo Hostel in downtown Johannesburg. One can easily visualize the scene. This could only be South Africa in the high days of apartheid, the clash of words and worlds in a kaleidoscope of attitudes and culture. In the deftly constructed scuttling of Africa, a posthumously published memoir mostly about his youth, Johnny Clegg writes vividly, recording filmic incidents, reflecting on attitudes, and shares the private with winsome honesty. At the point I mention, the teenage Clegg, born from a Jewish mother and English-Scottish father, had already crossed over what seemed the unyielding boundary between those worlds and languages. He could already play the typical township guitar's Mascandi-style rhythms, an instrument so very different, tuned and strummed to the classic one that he was getting formal lessons in. His black mate soon gave him a nickname, Skiyi, and he spoke the Zulu language easily and comfortably with him. Three decades later, and Clegg, now popular and known in France, for example, as the Zulu Blanc, would be playing on the world stages, perhaps the finest crossover cultural artist and performer the country has seen. With his boyhood friend Sipo Mjundu, who introduced him to the guitar and the dances, the duo Jaluka melted Zulu and English into a different brand of music that would later morph into the famous Savuka. As his anthem, Sambim Bunanga, We Have Not Seen Him, would reverberate across the German stadium to the ears of thousands in 1999, Nelson Mandela, to whom the song is dedicated, would walk on stage. You can watch it on YouTube. The goodwill of those Rainbow Nation moments was the triumph of Clegg's remarkable talent. Scuttling of Africa is the early story of Johnny Clegg's musical life in his own words. Published two years after his death, it is a moving, honest memoir that talks not only about the strangeness of being white in Southern Africa, but the possibilities that this rare matrix of culture and history offer. Clegg clearly understood the power of simplicity, and the book is so engaging because of the sincere directness and straightforward language. The text is also colored in with Zulu sayings and phrases, as well as quotes from his songs. Over the years, questions about appropriation and the macho Zulu warrior culture to which he was drawn surfaced. But if this book, so clearly and honestly written, doesn't explain the strange attraction that the teenage boy in Johannesburg developed for the Zulu culture, it certainly paints a picture of the spirited and unusual intelligence that formulated his worldview. Magical thinking was always part of his soul, as much as he was also held in boundless optimism. In fact, there is a chapter titled Magical Thinking in which he writes about Zulu culture, and I quote, Here was a whole living value system populated with layers of superstition and magic, comfortably accommodated in the real world. It's on page 217.
Clegg was an anthropologist in academia, and the book's vibrancy reflects his eye for observation. Of course, that part of his interest also led to the unlocking of the African music traditions that he explored in his striking original songs, arrangements, compositions, performances, and yes, the famous Zulu dancing. There are wonderful graphic tellings and anecdotes in the book. One such is the origins of the well-known song, Dwarza Friday. It's deliciously amusing, but I'm not going to divulge it. Read it on page 281. Thank you, reviewers, authors, learners, and Mwandi, Wesley, Ewan, and Dave for putting this month's tribute show together, and to Exclusive Books for sponsoring us. You'll find the podcast of this show on the FMR website. It feels only right to play out with Scatterlings of Africa by Johnny Clegg. We miss you, Johnny. was brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating 70 years of getting more books to more people. FM.